Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 239 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is horrendous. A violent man ready to kill for seemingly different motives. And another reminder of the pain and ruin that the actions of one man can cause to so many lives for generations. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, especially the new members of this group, that is Rebecca Brown, Karen Barker, Nicholas Fisher, Charlotte Ferguson and Kay Musk. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. As well as bonus episodes and other exclusive content, all Patreon supporters can enter the amazing competition to win a fantastic Central London hotel room in the CrimeCon Hotel for the Saturday Night of CrimeCon. Join us now at patreon.com slash UK True Crime. This podcast is sponsored by Stitch Fix. I watched Cruella this week. Have you seen it yet? It's pretty funky. And it reminded me again that while fashion changes, true style doesn't. But even for a man about town like me, the timeless look can use a pick-me-up every once in a while. So why not do what I did? and get some expert help from someone who knows what look you are going for with a Stitch Fix. If you haven't used Stitch Fix yet, it's an online personal styling company that brings you the world of fashion and style. It's a fun way to find clothes that you will love. You pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is credited towards anything you keep. Schedule at any time, there's no subscription required, plus shipping, returns and exchanges are easy and free. Get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash truecrime and you'll get 20% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash truecrime for 20% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash truecrime. Okay, let's set some context with our guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK music charts was Basement Jacks with Good Luck. In the US it was Fantasia with I Believe. And the Australian album charts, the top spot was filled by Casey Chambers with Wayward Angels. Nope, nor me. In the news this month, Bangkok subway system opened. I still recall my first time in Bangkok teaching English when I began by trying to walk everywhere. Well, not for long. Martha Stewart was sentenced to five months in prison plus five months in home confinement for lying to federal investigators. In the UK, another step in the right direction as an openly gay cleric was installed as the Dean of St Albans and the government announced backing for the seemingly never-ending, incredibly expensive Crosswell project. Did you get the month and year? It was July 2004. On to today's story. Claire Sanderson worked at a packaging factory near Selby, a market town around 15 miles south of York. When we joined the story in 2003, 
27-year-old Claire was suffering in her relationship with alcohol and when a colleague of hers, Mark Hobson, started paying her attention, Claire fell for him in a big way. As well as being partial to heavy drinking, the pair enjoyed each other's company and bonded over their joint love for Tracy Chapman. Despite her issues, Claire was very close with her parents and her sister Diane and her parents agreed to pay the rent for Mark and Claire on a flat and they moved in together. But the relationship was a volatile one, increasingly dominated by their large intake of alcohol. They were often seen physically fighting in public and on one occasion, Claire struck Mark over the head of a pool cue and bit him on the forehead when they were out. Another time, Claire was pushed down the stairs by Mark. But make no mistake here, Mark was the aggressor, with Claire fighting back when she could. Mark even gave Claire the nickname Eight Ball due to the amount of black and blue bruises she'd suffered at his hands. But other times when they were together, they seemed deeply in love, and Claire ignored the requests from her many friends to leave Mark, who they could see was no good at all for her. It was obvious that she adored him, with one neighbour describing how she seemed to follow him around like a lapdog. With the alcohol, the violence escalated, with on one occasion, a man dragging Mark off her as he stood on her chest, holding a 12-inch butcher's knife to her neck. Not long afterwards, another person intervened at their flat after Mark was seen repeatedly punching Claire in the face whilst holding her by the neck. Mark clearly wasn't happy, and he openly told his fellow colleagues from the days working as a bin man about how he had few feelings for Claire any longer. He told them he picked the wrong sister, and how he was determined to have Diane. Claire and Mark went to their local pub on the 10th of July and left for home at about 7.30pm, both having drunk heavily. The next day, Claire's sister received a call from Mark at the family home where she lived with her parents. Mark told her that Claire was suffering from glandular fever and asked if Diane could come to the flat to see her. Diane was of course happy to do so and arrived at just after 7.30pm on her way to meet her boyfriend Ian. Later that evening, when Diane hadn't turned up to meet Ian as arranged, Diane's boyfriend called her mobile. Mark, who knew Ian, they were old friends, answered the call and told her boyfriend the terrible news that Claire and Diane's dad, George, had suffered a fatal heart attack that day and said the twins had gone to comfort their mum. Ian was of course shocked and as he had no plans for the evening, Mark agreed to meet him at the Crichter's Arms in Selby. After a couple of hours, Ian came back to the flat for some more drinks, but Ian decided to go home. The next day, Ian was up early and he headed to the Sanderson's house to pay his respects after the tragic death of George. When he knocked on the door, he received the shock of his life when it was answered by George, who was fit and well. When he heard what Mark had told Ian, George was perplexed as he'd not suffered a heart attack, he was in fine health. The two men decided to head to Mark's flat to see exactly what was going on. When they got there, there was no sign of Mark, so George let himself in using the spare key. In one of the bedrooms, they discovered the lifeless bodies of Claire and Diane, wrapped naked in plastic bags. George Sanderson would later talk of this moment, saying, I went over and I grabbed hold of them. 
I knew that Claire was inside. I looked back to Diane and I just wanted to cuddle her. I don't know what he'd done to her. I thought he'd raped her. He'd taken away her dignity from her. She lay there with no clothes covered in bruises. I knew she was dead. As a parent, I can't imagine anything worse. The police arrived shortly afterwards and the two men were outside the house where one said, they're dead, that bastard has killed them. Mark Hobson was clearly the prime suspect and the police first went to the house of Mark's ex-wife Kay to ask where he could be. She had no idea, she didn't see him much at all and then she had the terrible task of explaining to their children, including their 13-year-old daughter, just what had happened. As in a tight-knit community like Selby, she couldn't risk them hearing the news from somebody else. The events of the previous evening now made sense to Diane's boyfriend, Ian. When they'd gone back to the flat, Mark had apologised to him for the smell. Claire, of course, had been dead for a few days at this stage, but Mark put it down to problems with the drains, and there had been blood on the couch where Ian, of course, couldn't have known. Is where. Claire was first attacked, but Mark explained it as being there as Claire had been experiencing women's problems. The whole time he was there, the bodies of the twins had been just feet away in the bedroom, and this is why that even when he went to use the toilet, Mark came with him, standing at the entrance to the door, so he didn't go into the bedroom and see what he had done. Detectives spoke to Mark's mum, who confirmed that she'd seen him the previous evening just after Ian had left his flat. He had told her there had been a car accident in York, which had left Claire and Diane badly injured in hospital, and he needed to visit them. She drove him the 15 minutes or so to the district hospital. At first she waited for him in the car park, but Mark soon returned to the car to update her with the news that Claire was still waiting for treatment, and Diane had been admitted. His mum said goodbye to him, understanding that the Sandersons would drop him home later. It was now 2am. Just a couple of miles from the hospital is the quiet village of Huntingdon. A bungalow in the village was home to James and Joan Britton, who'd been married for 58 years and had two daughters together. They were a frail couple, with James suffering from Parkinson's disease, and his wife was deaf and increasingly immobile. By 11.15am that morning, both were dead. Brutally murdered in their own home which had been ransacked by the intruder. Joan, so dignified in life, was in the hallway where she'd been stabbed repeatedly and beaten on the head of her own walking stick. The attack had been so frenzied that the handle of the weapon used to kill her had broken off from the blade. It was a similar story for James who was found in the living room suffering from equally appalling injuries. Was this second set of double murders connected to the murders of Claire and Diane? At first the police weren't sure, but when Hobson's fingerprints were found at the Britons' home, he was now a prime suspect for all four murders. But he was still on the loose, much to the horror of the local community, who were terrified of just what this man was capable of doing. There was widespread publicity with Hobson's picture circulated widely, but no sign of him, despite almost 2,000 alleged sightings in the five days since he'd last been seen from as far away as New Zealand. 
but detectives were confident that he was local. And they were right. He was just five miles away from the Britain's bungalow, where he was living in local woods not far from Shipton. But he was running out of water. And on Sunday the 25th of July, he took the risk of coming out of his hiding place to visit a local garage where he bought water, matches and cigarette papers. The owner immediately recognised him and called the police. Hobson didn't put up any sort of a fight and he was even complimentary to the police as they arrested him. As he was taken away, he said, I'm a fucking murderer, aren't I? At the joint funeral for Claire and Diane, the twins' tearful parents, George and his wife Jacqueline, walked arm in arm into church for the funeral service. As the mourners entered the church, Dolly Parton's song I Will Always Love You was played. The Archdeacon of Doncaster, who took the service, said that a CD of the song had been given to her dad by Diane as a present. During the service, he described them as each with their own personality and beauty, two devoted sisters always there for each other, girls still remembered fondly by staff while they attended the church school next door. He said they were talented athletes who excelled at cross-country and 800-metre events. And as the coffins were taken from the church, Ronan Keating's If Tomorrow Never Comes was played. Among the tributes outside was one from Diane's boyfriend Ian which read, Diane, my brown-eyed girl, miss you more than anyone can imagine. Love you. See you every night. Love, Ian. Another floral tribute was sent by Catherine Wilkins, the daughter of murdered pensioners James and Joan Britton. In custody, Hobson immediately admitted to killing Claire and Diane, but he claimed no memory of killing the Britons. He was charged with murder and held on remand at Wakefield High Security Prison, where he confided in prison warders that the last five weeks he'd been on a cocktail of cocaine, cannabis, ecstasy and alcohol. Detectives believed that the murders of Claire and Diane were premeditated and he had others he planned to murder too, including the twins' parents, George and Jacqueline. One note written by Hobson that was found said, George in the garage and Jackie in the house. Another note referred to a different couple and said, disable all, with the word disable underlined. There was a to-do note detailing how he planned to entice Diane to his flat and a shopping list for big bin liners, tape, tie wraps, fly spray and air freshener. Against Diane's name he had written, use and abuse at will. Detectives discovered that Hobson had used straight and gay chat lines and had made 68 calls to them in June and July just before the killing spree. Hours before killing Claire, he rang a sex line at 12.28am and left a message advertising himself. The message said, Hi, I'm Mark. I'm 34 years old and I'm solar powered. Other people say I'm bald. I like a laugh in life. I'm living on my own at the moment. I'm contracting for six months and I've got a two-bedroom house. I'm single in life but now I just want to meet somebody to have a laugh and a giggle with. Five women had replied to the message. When he and Claire had returned from the pub on the night he murdered her, Hobson attacked Claire with a hammer, hitting her 17 times. He then took her body upstairs and had a bath with her, cleaning her body. 
Over the next few days, he continued to talk to Claire, telling her about his plans. And whilst he was doing so, he wrote down on paper his next plan to kill her twin sister, Diane. When Diane arrived at the house after being told that her sister Claire glandular fever, she was restrained with ligatures on her hands and feet. She was sexually assaulted, beaten with a hammer and tortured with scissors and a razor. One of her nipples was completely bitten off and detectives believed that Hobson ate it. The ordeal that Diane went through must have been utterly, utterly terrifying and finally came to an end when Hobson strangled her and lay her in a plastic bag alongside her sister. It seemed that James and Joan Britton were picked as victims at random by Hobson, with the motive probably robbery as he began his time on the run. There was some speculation at first that he'd known the couple following gardening work in the community, but this was dismissed by detectives. He'd broken in through an open door and ransacked the home looking for cash, leaving incriminating fingerprints throughout the bungalow. It was utterly sickening to see how he'd beaten the frail couple with their own walking sticks. Hobson told detectives he couldn't remember what had happened, a statement which angered the daughter of the couple who later said, I was hoping there might be a clue, but I knew we would not find out. He says he does not remember, and I think it was completely random. There was absolutely no connection between him and my parents, but there will never be total closure because he cannot tell us why he did it. We will never forget what happened and will still have that hanging over us. In custody, Hobson was examined by experts to try and find some reason why he'd committed these attacks and they delved into his life history. He was born in September 1969 at hospital in Wakefield, Yorkshire to Peter and Sandra Hobson. Along with his two sisters, Mark lived in Wakefield until 1982 where they moved to Selby, where his dad found work in a coal mine. At school, Hobson was, well, very forgettable and academically very average. One teacher described him as very well behaved, so average and ordinary that he was almost anonymous. Sometime after school, he got back together with his childhood girlfriend Kay and he adopted her two children and they had a daughter of their own. Kay described him as a perfect husband as he worked as a landscape gardener. But then it all went wrong when he began a new career as a nightclub bouncer. Hobson changed and one New Year's Eve when the couple were out, he told Kay that he didn't want this anymore. He didn't want the family life. It wasn't because of her there was no one else. He just didn't want it anymore and he moved out. He began drinking heavily, so much so that it became not just difficult with Kay but also short-tempered with his children when he saw them. His wife was perplexed. She said there was no one else involved. He just didn't want married life anymore. It was bizarre. I couldn't believe it. He turned to pot and drinking heavily. He never drank when we were married, but now he got out of his face. He became like a zombie. His life just went completely off the rails. Mark would sometimes accuse his family of stealing his booze and one time he grabbed hold of his stepdaughter by the throat when he was certain that she had taken the last can of beer from the fridge, which of course he'd already downed. This level of aggression meant that by the time Hobson met Claire Sanderson, even his children no longer wanted anything to do with him. 
and we've covered already how he was violent towards Claire, but there were other violent episodes in his history. Most notable were when he attacked a former girlfriend that was described as like a madman in 1990. And in 2002, Hobson stabbed a man who was seen as a love rival five times in the chest in a daylight attack in front of shoppers, leaving him with a punctured lung, and he celebrated as he did it. Hobson admitted grievous bodily harm, but he escaped jail, receiving a community punishment. And in another incident, Hobson was seen with a knife to a man's eye in 2003, threatening to pull out his eyeball. And around the same time, two different women said he'd beaten them too. At his trial, Hobson pleaded guilty to four counts of murder. He was sentenced to four terms of life imprisonment, with a recommendation that he should never be released. This was one of the first times that this sort of recommendation had been made for someone who'd admitted their crime at the first opportunity. And Hobson, despite an appeal that wasn't upheld, is still in prison today. So what do you make of what we've heard today in this story? Hobson is clearly a monster, a real monster. And our thoughts go out to the families of those affected by his actions and his own family who were devastated by what he did. He is, I would suggest, particularly unusual as he appeared to kill for different reasons. The first murder of Claire was for domestic reasons. But then with Diane, it was a sexually motivated killing. And as for the Britons, it seemed it was robbery. It was part of a bungled burglary. That's why he killed them. Should he have been sent to prison for some of his early attacks? Almost certainly, the signs were there. He was clearly a danger to society and was becoming increasingly volatile and violent. One of the things that stands out for me is the coolness and calmness that he showed when lying to Diane's boyfriend Ian and inviting him into the house when the two sisters lay dead in another room. It's quite staggering to hear, isn't it? Let me leave you with yet another reminder of just how much pain the families involved are put through. In this case, George, the dad of Claire and Diane, attempted to take his own life as he just couldn't cope with the pain of what had happened to his family. That image of seeing his two children murdered, lying side by side in plastic bags on a bed, the reality of that moment is just too terrible for us to contemplate. And how one man completely destroyed two hard-working normal families with so much to live for and to look forward to. It is of some comfort, I suppose, but sadly not much, that the man who inflicted so much horror and pain, Mark Hobson, will die in prison. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head over to the Facebook group. It is many things there, but it is certainly never dull with almost 75,000 of us. And to support the show, to keep me producing this every week and access bonus episodes, other exclusive content, and be in for the chance to win the Central London Hotel Room at CrimeCon for as little as a pound a month, please join us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. You know it makes sense. So that's all for me for another week. Until we speak again next week, 
please do take it easy. And despite all the others, I know, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Parts.